Hello everyone, I'm Samantha Jane Smith. And I'm Jacob Keynes, and you are listening to the Classical Queer Podcast. Hello everyone, and welcome to the Classical Queer Podcast. A couple of years ago on one of our first podcasts, Jacob and I interviewed composer and vocalist Ryan Gleave. Since that interview, Ryan's career has taken off and he's become a leading light in Scotland's new music scene. Today, we're going to talk to Ryan about a new album he's got called In Chemical Transit by the group All Men Unto Me, which features Rylan. Now, the album explores Rylan's vocal journey from mezzo-soprano to bass baritone through some historic recordings of his voice. So essentially, it's like a time capsule of a voice that you will never hear again. So welcome to the show again, Rylan. Thank you very much. It's so lovely to be back, um, especially to be talking about something that is, um, yeah, so personal and so moving for me. And I'm, yeah, really glad to have the platform to talk about it. So thank you for having me. Great. And um, so maybe we'll start um, by giving the listeners, uh, if you'd like to give them a short biography of yourself, whatever you'd like them to know. Yeah, absolutely. So hi, I'm Rylan, Rylan Gleave. Um, I'm a um, composer and vocalist, musician, artist more generally. Um, so I originally trained as a mezzo-soprano however many years ago. It feels like quite a lot now. Um, and then I did my undergrad and master's degree in composition at the Royal Conservatoire of Scotland. Uh, and I finished that in July 2021. Yeah, um, and I've moved to Edinburgh and I've been here since freelancing. Um, so I now take on um, vocal work. I take on composition work, kind of commissions and stuff. I lead workshops. I do a lot for um, young people with additional support needs. I run a lot of trans voices workshops. Um, I sing with heavy metal band Ash Inspire. So I've been doing a lot of tour this year um, and playing some cool festivals. And then, yeah, I've set up this moniker, um, All Men Unto Me, um, to kind of, I think, put forward the music that is still... Well, the first release in Chemical Transit is still, I think, rooted in new music or contemporary classical music, but it's really a space for me to explore what I want to do out with commissions. Because um, I think I, whilst I really like writing to a brief and kind of working on very particular things, um, it's really exciting for me to be exploring what I want to explore, um, I guess, through a sort of veil as a sort of, who is this person? What is this project? And to work with collaborators that I really enjoy working with. In Chemical Transit is a pretty unique piece of music um, in the sense that it's looking back through your voice as it's changed over time. So um, can you just explain to the listeners how you came up with this concept and, and when you first thought of doing this? Yeah, I can pretty much pinpoint you the day um, because I was looking through my laptop to try and clear some storage space on it. And I was going through deleting big files that were taking up room. Um, and I found a video of me aged 14 singing the aria Voice Sapete from Mozart's Figaro at my piano teacher's 70th birthday concert at the Royal Northern College Conservatoire, RNCM, in Manchester. Um, and I watched it through, um, and I would have been maybe 22 at that point. Um, and it was the first time I'd listened to a recording of me as a mezzo-soprano and not like physically cringed and gone, oh, I can't listen to this. Oh, this is very painful. Uh, I kind of, I was watching it with like this weird sense of fascination. I was like, who is this person? Like, I, I, I recognize that as me, but wow, like, th this is, this, this, yeah, the, the separation, I think, had finally hit that point where I was like, oh, I'm so comfortable with myself now that I don't identify with this person. Like, I still see them. And I, you know, I appreciate them and see that I've come kind of from them. Um, but it was like, I'm not this person. Um, and that was fascinating. Uh, it was just a really, like, 
a very weirdly healing kind of peaceful experience watching this video and i i kind of caught the bug a bit and i was going through um yeah just different recordings on my laptop and finding all these things that i'd sung as a teenager and like little acapella videos i'd made of pop songs and like little compositions i'd tried and like me doing karaoke and like <laughs> it, was, it was just really sweet um and then all of it was like it was so self-serious which I like, <laughs> it was just really funny because like as an adult watching them, I was like, wow, like they're quite funny. Cause yeah, I think because of that sincerity. Um, and then I found one when I've been trying to practice for my um, ABRSM teaching diploma exam. And I think I'd been taking testosterone for about eight or nine weeks. And I clearly just made this little video to send to a friend. Cause it was like, hi, how you doing? Like, I'm, so this is me trying to sing Voices Pate, eight weeks on tea, but and like I sing it and it just, it cracks. It's like really volatile. It's like, it's got this like horrendous quality to it. Um, and I just, I laughed. I just, I found it so funny that there were like these little historical artifacts of me preserved throughout time. Um, and I thought, you know, I just, I really have to do something with this. So yeah, it really sprung, the whole album kind of sprung from finding those two recordings in particular um, and evolved into the 43 minute work that it is now. Wow. I mean, I think it's probably worth saying to listeners that that for, for a lot of trans people, uh, the voice is something that um, affects them a great deal. Uh, I mean, as as you've said, you, you sort of used to cringe when you were singing. Uh, oh, yeah. Your, your <laughs> um, and but now you've separated a distance, which is kind of interesting. Now you can it's like you almost can look back and see a separate person, a person who's, you know, different from that. Yeah, I think voice, you're right there, is kind of the key for me personally in that. I think having trained as a singer, um, it's almost it kind of it's the forefront of your identity when you're applying for conservatoires to go and do a degree in singing and kind of getting into that opera world. Um, and I found that process as a, as a teenager really difficult um, because I was getting to understand the language of, you know, I'm, I'm not a cis person, I'm not a cis woman. Um, and I love singing, I love performing, but so much about this just isn't right. Um, and for me, I then, when I moved and started doing composition instead of singing, um, there was a, a real reservation, like I really don't want to sing. I don't want to sing in front of people. Um, I want to try and sing stuff that's middle, low register, but I don't yet have the range for it. The NHS is taking quite a while to get back to me, so I can't really get on hormones. Um, and yeah, that was that was a difficult um, point and I from you know my kind of own teaching practice my own workshop practice um, it's a really sore point for a, a lot of trans people not just trans men mm. but I think pretty much everyone um, it can be a yeah a really sticky thing to try and wrangle yeah I, and it's kind of interesting I, I we we did a, a workshop if you remember a couple of years ago and and um, I was there with a trans man and, and they said the almost identical words to you mm -hmm. they absolutely the, their voice was something they cringed at because it was because it was high mm. i mean i have the opposite problem <laughs> mine's too deep um singing lessons appreciated here um so <laughs> so we you know it is it is the kind of opposite but it is it is something um i think that you know is is very you know it it, it is part of your identity as you say which i think particularly for you is very important so that, that's kind of interesting so 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 okay so you had all these snippets of, of bits of things so then how did you put all this together into your 43 minute um, <laughs> uh, lp yeah and um, so i started with the fourth track uh, i seek something brackets outside of myself 
um because i was i was going through the text the libretto for um <clears throat> excuse me for voice sapete um and translating it it's like it's actually quite i've maybe you know coming at it with bias but it feels like a very trans piece of writing to me Carabino as a character is obviously a trouser role so i played Carabino as a mezzo soprano pretending to be a man on stage and then maybe sometimes that man then pretends to be a woman so you've got this like weird well i'm a man pretending to be a woman pretending to be a man pretending to be a woman it just yeah spirals quite quickly so i was really trying to get to grips with the text and it's like very teen angsty it's like ladies you who know what love it do you do you see it in my heart is it me i i i, lo- I love languishing this way this flame this fire this burning ice it's like really funny um <laughs> so i yeah i was trying to do like a, a quite rough translation just with google translate of the italian and then i actually found a like i've got a friend who speaks italian more properly and i was like can we actually sit down and like work this out um and one of the translations for one of the lines was i seek something outside of myself and i was like oh that's that's the trans experience isn't it you know for me anyway that's very like um yeah it plays with the theme of kind of other and and self and identity um and i was just kind of noodling around on my piano i was finding some nice chord progressions um and i didn't realize but i'd accidentally left the um uh vinyl thing on i'd left my record player on and it was just kind of fizzing in the background and it was like oh this is quite a nice like sonic textual exploration mm around like this piano stuff and I was like oh I know this is kind of moody I'll kind of play with this a bit more um and I I just had the idea to take sections of um the recording of me when my voice was breaking and kind of insert that into different little parts of the of the static um I ended up not using real vinyl static I got some kind of radio static to put in um but yeah it came out of me kind of playing with the the historical artifact of the recording the random in the moment oh what was what's this sound that's kind of accompanied my my room and my piano playing um and then yes started kind of scoring and notating outwards from that so yeah it kind of grew from the middle almost and went back to the beginning and then to the end very cool what do you what are your thoughts about um like as a composer and as like a, a new music uh, specialist who's kind of using this old text this mozart this really classical canon um traditional which comes with so much to it, history, uh, good and bad baggage. What are your thoughts on how you did the actual scoring? So like you're, you're taking something so, what many people will probably call quite rigid, like a Mozart opera. Uh, and how do you fuck with that in like uh, the most beautiful way? Like, how did you do that? I mean, so you sitting in your room, fine, but like walk us through that. Yeah. Um, that's a, it's a really interesting question because I think so much of it was so intuitive. Um, like I'd hear, when, like when I was um, writing it, my voice was still breaking to some extent. Like it's still, like it's mostly settled down now, but there was a good three year period where it was like, mm, you kind of can't pitch anything, can you? You're like, you're really struggling here. <laughs> um, so there was a good time period of me, like having the score out on the piano and like playing through the aria and finding different sections and kind of like, elongating them and extending them and going back to it and watching different versions of it and seeing all the nice costumes and um i think there's something for me in um in the uh <clears throat> yeah within that process that um just feels quite naturally queer 
Um, I think maybe that's, you know, kind of drawing on my own experiences as a queer person, how I've performed these pieces. But even then watching historical performances of me doing it, you know, this kind of young 14 year old with, you know, hair not too dissimilar from how I have it now, which is kind of a short back and sides, you know, <laughs> looking like a lesbian in my nice big suit and my hand painted waistcoat and my, you know, <laughs> looking very sweet and like very young. Um, and somehow thinking that, you know, I don't know. I, I I think it's funny that people even then were like, yes, this this cis woman is you know going to go and be a mezzo soprano. Like I think <laughs> it's that retroactive thing, isn't it? Of like, oh yeah, yeah, no, you 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 got something going on. Um, and yeah, even in, in those old performances, seeing that was like, well, there, there needs to be something of this um, this almost. It's not quite comedic, but there's there's certainly elements of humor that I find in those old performances of me, and in the fact of like the voice breaking itself, like they're quite funny sounds. Um, that I think kind of just just made their way into the piece. I don't think I really tried particularly to, I didn't like make a plan of how I was going to recontextualize it. I think I just knew that bits of it would work in particular contexts. And some of those were more serious and quite heartfelt. Some of them were very joyful. And, you know, I'm putting this spin on it because this is significant. This journey has been, you know, massive. And this, this part at the end is now kind of recap of where we've gone and where we've been. Um, and then, yeah, there are still those kind of humorous moments in the live show that we did in Edinburgh. I did a launch concert at the end of the month. Um, <laughs> the kind of interlude section, which is me going, hey, this is my voice, whatever, weeks on tea, trying to sing Boy Case Pate. I lip synced it. So it kind of came through the speakers and I'm in my big, <laughs> my big gown with my big billowy sleeves and I'm lip syncing it. And everyone started like crying with laughter because there was just, we'd gone from this very serious, you know, oh, wow, the voice transition. I'm like, hey, it's me, 12 weeks on tea. Um, <laughs> it was great. <laughs> really fun which i mean i feel like mozart would appreciate <laughs> there's like there, there's like a lot of high camp in in mozart and i feel like you know if contemporary mozart were around he could <laughs> hell in a lot of different ways so like that's probably very on point to be honest I mean, quite but... possibly yeah. yeah i mean i went back and looked at a, a recording on on i think it was the new york met of, of um, somebody doing cherubino's aria mm-hmm. and and it is terribly camp i mean it, it really is overly played and terribly terribly camp and and you know you just have to you know believe that there was you know that mozart had some sort of queer vision in mind here you know or something because it is so so extreme mm-hmm. it's wonderful really yeah. <laughs> it's it, it's laugh i mean it makes you smile which i think is the thing because it is so it is so so camp i think yes absolutely well, you've mentioned this first piece, which is I Seek Something Outside of Myself. So um, I think it's probably a good opportunity to take a listen to it. Nice. Fuori di 
slow-mo's um, coming out too. Not taking into account voice break. And I just tried to sing something and not to In, I mean, listening to uh, a recording of yourself, what, how many weeks did you say on T? That was nine weeks on T? Yeah, it's like eight or nine. In that eight or nine. And so you have this this combo. I mean, Time Capsule is a great, great uh, version for this, that you're, you're looking at recordings from yourself when you're young. Uh, you're listening to recordings of yourself from eight, nine weeks on T uh, with the perspective of uh, now years on. 
what does that version sound like to you in your head? I mean, how much of a, like a distance between your, your young self, which we were talking about, how much of a distance between that self do you have now? Does that feel like? Yeah, no, um, it's very weird, isn't it? It's, it's all very weird. And I think, um, not, not to go off on one about technology, but like, I think it's weird, you know, for me, like that part of, um, my childhood is very well documented. Um, my parents, you know, had kind of cameras and we made videos. And so I've got all these kind of recordings to choose from. Um, and in a sense that makes them feel closer than they are sometimes. Mm -hmm. And I think there's also something in there about, um, our perception of ourselves and our gender. Cause I think for me, um, when I hear my voice kind of inside my head, when I'm thinking it's much higher in pitch than my voice now speaking out loud is. Sometimes so much that it shocks me on recordings. I'm like, wow, who's this man? Like, <laughs> what are you talking about? Um, and so that clip where I'm like, hey, it's my voice eight, nine weeks on T. I'm like, no, no, I probably sound maybe a, a bit lower pitch than that, but somewhere more around there. Um, <clears throat> and it's, it's always then very confusing when I hear myself later. So in, in some senses, that that part of me feels like it was, you know, years ago, because it was, and I've had a whole wealth of experiences in my you know, career and personal life has been on a massive arch and trajectory since then and in some ways it's like no i can still remember that quite well and i've got these kind of videos these documents to back it up so yeah a weird kind of liminal space almost mm. i'm not sure if it's a, i i'm trying to work out if it's a good thing to have all this documentation or not <laughs> i mean i mean i kind of i i have nothing virtually from when i was young because it's such a long time ago that they didn't have cameras I should <laughs> um but 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 I kind of but I kind of can't work out if it's good or bad to have a record of all of this. I mean, I can see that there is a definite good side to it, but I would also worry, you know, because you can see how you can see all these things. And you must go. Oh, I just began. Oh my God, look at me! I, I, it's so awful. You know? Yeah, it's the cringe, isn't it? The cringe yeah. really kicks in. But I, I I like the quote that's like, "Kill, don't kill the part of you that is cringe. Kill the part of you that cringes." Because yeah, realistically, sense. you've you've come, as we all have, come on a massive, massive journey since then. And I think that's particularly true of trans people who've had to put more of that work in, I guess, manually. Um, but there's there seems for me anyway to be a really beautiful part of that journey. And I think that's that's almost exemplified in the kind of last track. Because I really struggled in thinking how I was going to end the album when I was writing it. Because obviously the, the journey through it is, is fraught. There's a lot in there that's screamed. You know, you can't get more primal than that for me. It's, you know, using the voice as that yeah, that very big vessel that it is to to send out those those signs of anguish and of pain. Um, and there's a lot in there that's, you know, fun and that's light spirited and there's some falsetto as whatever, but how to, how to end that is really the like, hmm, that's, that's the puzzle. But, um, but you are, also your journey has nowhere near ended. I and mean, that's, that's the yeah, other thing, you know, you've is, got a long it? way to go. <laughs> yeah. And even again, doing that live show, um, it sounded so wildly different from the album and that's only with two and a half mm -hmm. years of distance um the way that that voice has settled since then is like kind of nuts um yeah it's it's all it's funny isn't it time becomes relevant and irrelevant to it both yes i mean jacob here's a question for you i'm sorry to put you in a position here but but i mean as i mean we're both trans people and and we do have this big cringe factor looking back on ourselves a few years I mean, I certainly do. I mean, even six months ago, I go, oh, my God, look at that. that's awful. You know, I just kind of feel, do you, do you feel the same as that? I mean, is this a standard, a standard cringeness that everybody feels? Or, or I mean, I would say yes, in the sense that there, there's so much that I, 
I, I also have like a fairly well documented, at least artistically, like childhood and um, early part of my like career that I look back and think, oh, you poor stupid idiot. Like, what are you doing? Like, there's there's absolutely <laughs> nothing good or redeemable about what, what I'm like listening to or watching. But that's, I, you know, I think that's that part of it is probably fairly natural purely because there's always a progression of what you're doing and everything. Hmm. If you're doing something uh, worthwhile and useful, when you look back on a previous iteration, of course, you would hope to, to do it differently later or it sounds different or it feels different or... Um, whatever, right, I but I, I think there's the, the element for me that is taken obviously is, is, um, looking back and not, uh, I don't remember how you said it exactly around them, but like understanding that that's the person that you're watching, but not connecting with that person anymore. I don't have that, um, maybe disembodied is maybe like too charged a word to say, but like that disembodied version of, uh, I understand that that's me, but it also still feels like me. It's still my, my, uh, continuous lineage in that sense. But, um, I don't have that objective look on myself. And so maybe there's, there's less opportunity for, um, to remove the, the part of you that cringes. Cause it's still very much me. Like it's still very much I'm stuck with your cringe. I'm afraid. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have the opportunity to, uh, yeah. to disassociate that. Yeah. I mean, this is kind of an interesting thing. So, so, I mean, the ability Ryland to, to reinvent yourself. Hmm. Yeah. Between, between your, your younger, younger days, between your very young days and your young days as they are now, that ability to 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 reinvent you've you've reinvented your voice and and your persona in a way so i mean that that's kind of um i, I mean how, from from an artistic point of view uh, how has that worked i think uh reinventing is a really interesting word um and i think i would maybe use reclaimed instead um, I think, yeah, yeah, just because I think with, with reinventing, there comes some kind of avoidance, doesn't there? There's like, a, oh, I'll just, oh, I'll do this instead. To avoid look at the yeah, thing. You're right, you're right. Yeah. Is better. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, no, I like, I like reclaim um, because I think also that, um, yeah, so much of the part of me that used to cringe at my former self um, was because there hadn't been that, there hadn't been enough distance. I still identified so much with that part of myself. Um, that it became painful because it, it felt like I was being perceived. It felt like I was being perceived by everyone else as still this thing, this person who I wasn't. And I think earlier for me in transition, that was really quite a problem because before my voice had dropped, before my kind of face shape had changed, before I'd had top surgery, there was a fair amount of, it became less and less frequent. Misgendering was very common. Um, and it, you're so convinced that everyone is seeing you as this version of your former self when you're kind of moving away from it. Um, and I'm very fortunate, again, you know, to be white, to be a man, <laughs> to be moving in a way that's kind of transitioning into privilege almost. Um, well, conditional privilege. I could go off on one about the conditions of trans masculinity, but I'll leave that for today. Um, transitioning into um, a person that kind of flies under the radar. You know, I'm kind of average height. I'm, I'm white in a very white place. Um, no one really looks at me and questions. They, may, they go, you know, you're definitely gay now, which is fine. I am. Um, and I do, do lean into that. Um, but I don't really often have my gender questioned anymore. 
So that that part of cringe within that, because I'm I'm not perceived as that person anymore. I think it's become easier for me to treat that former person with kindness instead of with disdain and with disgust, because I'm not being reminded of how it felt to be them, which was deeply unhappy. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So. <laughs> I'm getting some nods. And and, and I think it I th I think it does as as the opposite experience going the other way. Mm. It's it's kind of um um you you don't have quite the same luxury of hiding in the same quite the same way and i don't mean that in a in a in a bad sense of the word i mean mm. i think i think you know there is a a lot of issues as you sort of alluded to there with trans masculinity at the moment you know and and there's a lot of um things that need to be addressed there in that in that side of things um but you know as a as a um six foot two trans woman it is kind of you kind of stick out you know and yep. and you can't hide in the same way um and that but it is this difference in the way that you know tra i mean we, we don't want to go into this in too much detail but you know trans women are seen in one particular way and trans men are seen in a completely mm. different sort of almost patronizing oh, kind of way damn you know, mm. like you, you poor person, you don't know what you're doing, kind of thing. You confused lesbian. Ooh. Oh yeah, you're confused. Yeah, you poor thing. <laughs> so you just confused. need. Oh, you're so confused. Oh, we're all you know, so is, confused, aren't we? <laughs> where's the trans woman's a, a nasty son of a bitch? And is oh yeah, yeah, predator, awful. Yeah, predator. It's yeah, horrifying, horrible. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it is kind. Of, it is kind of interesting the dichotomy. But let, let's get back. Let's get yeah, back, back to, to the, the cringe. cringe. <laughs> <laughs> to the cringe. Um, <laughs> So the next piece we're going to listen to is the interlude itself. And you've already talked a little bit about this, but but maybe you'll just reiterate what this is about and, and, yeah. how, and how it actually fits into the, to the story. Yeah, so it's kind of smack bang in the middle of the album. Um, and it is simply that voice recording of me saying what I'm doing and singing a little bit. Um, and it cuts off where I stopped the video because I was I was cringing so hard at recording it that I just I couldn't finish it. Um, but I think it'll be interesting, yeah, for people listening, because obviously my speaking voice now I'm perceiving in my own head is the same pitch as what you're about to hear. And I'm, yeah, I'm going to see how interesting yeah, it is for, for everyone else seeing if that's actually true, because I don't think it is. So, so listeners, you now have an opportunity to hear uh, Ryland's change of voice and, and we'll take a quick <laughs> vote afterwards on whether he sounds <laughs> remotely the same. So let, let's take a quick listen. Hey, so I've got my fucking diploma exam coming up, right? And I just tried to sing the piece that I'm doing an octave down, not taking into account voice breaks. So here is voice compared to my Mozart, an octave down, being eight, nine weeks on team. I'm sorry in advance. I hope this provides you with some joy. Side, you don't sound a thing like see i realistically i do know that but you can't but get it like 
yeah, it's just not yet solidified. Maybe it will. Maybe I just need to keep talking. Yeah, yeah just keep talking. Don't stop. Yeah, yeah. Never. Yeah. never. <laughs> yeah. Jacob, do you want to? Yeah, I mean, I, maybe I'm curious at that, that same comment. How often do you listen to your, I mean, what, what, what opportunity do you have to listen to your current voice? Like what, other than maybe doing podcasts, like, how often <laughs> do you hear your current uh, pitch? Um, that's funny that you said pitch because pitch not often, voice fairly frequently. Mm -hmm. um, so with the kind of metal band stuff that's been picking up, um, we've been very fortunate to get kind of tours in a lot of international festivals and people record that. And so I'm having, I review that footage a lot because I'm always looking for ways that I can improve as a performer. And I'm a little bit like, yeah, I do it quite a lot. Um, mm. And it's funny because none of that is pitched. It's very mm -hmm. rare that pitch kind of slips into any of that. It's all about texture. Um, and I think when my voice was breaking and I'd kind of joined that band, it was a perfect opportunity to perform again without having to be so concerned with pitch. Mm -hmm. Um, and listening back to kind of some of the early stuff of that, like I wasn't very good at it and that kind of wasn't the point. I was having fun and I was learning and it was a completely new musical environment. Um, but yeah, it's, it's rare really that I listen to myself speaking. Um, and sometimes I listen to myself like when I'm recording kind of demos or like new projects or takes I listen to myself singing back my actual speaking voice not particularly often mm. and I think yeah that it's it still feels more uncomfortable than listening to myself sing but I wonder how much of that is actually about voice and more about like content of like mm. what am I saying and like what do I agree with that do I agree with the way that I phrase that and I think for me that ties into autism and that ties into kind of social communication more generally um, but yeah, speaking is still way more uncomfortable to listen back to than singing is. Very, very interesting. And I think that also comes back to, I mean, as, as you were saying, uh, at, the, at the beginning of the podcast, like there's such a immediacy to voice that it feels so there's, there's no uh, disambiguation between like instrument and person and self. And so the, we mm. talk about this and anybody who sings that it feels incredibly, um, exposed and threadbare whenever you're seeing it. it's just like a very uh, immediate thing and so it's interesting that speaking voice has such a different um feel for you or or maybe not not feel it is different it's, it's a different <laughs> way of using your voice but like it's so interesting that that kind of yeah. separation mm. sammy do you get that is there a distinction between speaking and singing voice and listening back for you <laughs> well my singing voice is terrible so I mean, I you know, just don't believe that. The, the, yeah, just... right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just don't. I, 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 yes, I, I can sing every note correctly, but in the wrong order. It's a, it's a walk on, walk on That's new music, Sammy. That's, That's it. it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm before my time. Is what I think. I, I mean, what I do find is that, um, I mean, when I'm actually speaking, um, and when I listen to it back, I have do have a completely different um, understanding of myself. Um, and, and I absolutely hate listening to my voice. I mean, I, I really, really do. I mean, I can, I could, when I'm talking, it's okay, which is why I talk so much. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but I, but I, but, but when I actually have to sit and listen to it, like listening to the podcast, editing it, I, I really do cringe at my voice. Um, not just because of its pitch, which is, is too low. Um, but also because I sound very pompous on it, I always think. But, <laughs> but I think we all have these things. I mean, I think that's kind of your, you know, because you hear it, well, I hear it by voice differently to what you hear it as, and this kind of thing. So I think we all have that. But but certainly I think it's kind of worse for trans people in a way because we kind of have that separation of, you know, um, 
a, a, the people use the the pitch as such a a, 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 a signifier of what gender you are, despite mm. the fact there are cis women with very deep voices and cis men with very high voices but they automatically mm-hmm. you know put into in fact my wife actually we we tried this we had a recording you know we we tried pitching our voices she actually mm-hmm. has a deeper voice than i do huh. um and, and she has a really d- deep voice um but she's never but she never misgendered because of the voice it's kind of interesting it's not just the the pitch it's the the ca- character and te- as you, texture as you know ryland Mm. makes a difference as well i um you've reminded me of something very funny which is what the first time i went to like a barber shop rather than a hairdresser's um and i had like hair was kind of still short back and sides but like a little bit longer and i had like just jeans on a t-shirt and the, i went in and the guy was like all right do you want a haircut and i just kind of nodded he's like all right sit down sat down and he was like so what do you want and i went short back and sides please and he went <laughs> and he went oh god i'm so sorry i thought you were a bloke and then oh. just continued. And I was like, oh, man, you're so close. But um, yeah, there was that period of time where like it's the voice that gives you away. Yes. And not that, you know, that's a... Um, yeah, you're right. It is It is precise. Uh, or on the phone. I find uh, on the phone. Uh-huh. You know, it's like, it's like I get this. Um, excuse me, sir. Uh, no, <laughs> Jeez. Uh-huh. no, no, no. My name is Samantha. No, yeah. no, sir. <laughs> and we go to this thing of this thing and it's like, will you stop? What is this dance? Like, why? Yeah. 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 So that's, that's kind of a, kind of a, (laughs) but it is that it is, and it is purely that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. You know, it, it is a, it's a strange concept for me, you know, and we go back to Mozart where Mozart, you know, was using, using women to sing boys parts and all that and all the mix up. And we can talk about Shakespeare mixing up, you know, I, 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 you, another little story. Sorry, we're going off on a tangent here. But as you like it, I, I did that at school, and as you like it, you have, um, you know, the, the, the I can't remember the names of the two. There's a woman who's, who's, who, who likes this guy, and the guy likes her, but they won't go together until that. So he, she dresses as a boy to pretend to, to, to give him practice at, 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 at wooing a girl as a boy. And I actually played that role, and I was a, a boy. I mean, I was thirteen or something, playing this role, knowing that I really wanted to be a girl, playing a boy, a girl playing a boy. Uh-huh. That sounds no familiar. Now, no, no wonder I was screwed up. From <laughs> I mean, it was kind of like, what, what gender am I? Oh my god, you know, like this kind of thing. So, so anyway, that's covered Shakespeare as well. <laughs> Box ticked. That's good. We've done Shakespeare and Mozart. We'll hit Moliere at some point. (laughs) Um, Yeah, the next piece we're going to listen to. um, This is um, uh, a bit of uh, Cherubino's aria, if I'm correct, um, from uh, Nozze di Figaro. So um, tell us a bit about this piece. Again, you've taken some text out of the aria. Is this the last track? Is this Senza uh, no, it's track, track six. Ah, track six. Okay, okay. Um, you notice that I'm not saying the title because my Italian is so <laughs> dreadful. <laughs> well, I know <laughs> I was screwed up. <laughs> so I'm trying to avoid <laughs> saying it because I know it will be wrong. So, uh, Well, no, you've, you've thrown me for a second because we. I wasn't sure whether to include the interlude as like a track or like or half yes. a track. 
So I'm I'm stuck between going, okay, well, is track six the... Is, is it the one straight after the interlude or is it the one after that? One straight after the interlude. Okay. Five, track five. <laughs> so, ma promi piace langue così. Okay, there we go. Um, so this one actually only has the tiniest bit of voice on it. Um, this one is um, played mostly by my wonderful dear friend and collaborator, Simone Seals, who is a cellist. Um, and they are one of the most fantastic people to work with. I've hired them to do all of my stuff because um, they're just great. Um, and the um, kind of idea behind this is that the electronics that you hear, this very like um, almost warped kind of time stretchy sound is actually the opening of the arias, the piano accompaniment that has been so heavily processed that you can't recognize it anymore. And, you know, draw whatever metaphor you like from that. Um, but the score itself is quite free. There's a lot of kind of scope for Simone to play about with extended techniques. I ended up giving them like um, different drawn boxes with material inside and kind of layering that over um, how I notated the tape part itself. But the tape part notation has got words in it. So it's like at the first bloom of sound, here's the material that you play. And then when it moves on to here, you've got this kind of um, uh, almost like you're lightly touching the string as for a harmonic and like very carefully, like kind of tapping the bow. And then, um, yeah, the sound designer and also the mixing engineer for this piece, Scott McLean, um, has done wonders with the um, kind of sound design and spatialization of it. Like he's really pulled out a lot of the small ideas and kind of textures that I'd put in and made them like blossom and just in such beautiful, beautiful ways. Um, and then you hear a tiny little voice, bit of voice near the end, um, which is my voice um, just over a year on testosterone. Um, so my falsetto hadn't quite grown in, but I was regaining a little bit more of that upper register. Because for a while it was like, you have middle C and one note above and three notes below. And that is the extent of your range, um, which was hard. It was tricky to find repertoire, I will say. Um, you have to write your own. You have to write your own <laughs> You really do. You really do. Um, and so, yeah, I just started to get a little bit of that higher stuff back. And I just I had the track on. I was, again, noodling about the piano, improvising in my room at home, um, and just came up with a tiny little fragment of a melody that kind of sits over the cello line. Um, but, yeah, it's the most voiceless in the in the whole album. Hmm. But the, the word you picked out, um, if I got the translation mm. right, is, um, but still I rather enjoy languishing this way, <laughs> which is, which is the, the, the sort of standard translation. Yeah. So, uh, what, what's, is there a meaning behind that, that putting that in there? What, what is it just, you, you know, I mean, t tell us why, why that particular piece? <laughs> I think um, there's, there's something in there about um, how, how not present the voice actually is. Um, because this is an album about my voice and its its journey. Um, and so I thought there's something in there about that. Um, what was the word you were talking about earlier, Jacob? Like disembodied. Like when we do this, I'm not on stage. Um, I kind of move, I come through the audience in the interlude and I'm off stage for this as a piece. Um, and there's something I think in there about the, the mixed relationship I have with voicelessness kind of as a concept. Um, because... For so long, it was this high voice that was so difficult for me. Um, it was the pitch of it and the range of the register that was the problem. And then when I lost all of that and started growing the lower stuff, <laughs> all I could think about was like, wow, I still don't have a falsetto. I've lost this massive like chunk of range and I can't access it. And then it was surprisingly such a joyful thing when that started growing back. And it, it really got me thinking about um, 
I don't know, like, it's like the kind of grass is always greener kind of thing. Not in like a, I regret taking hormones kind of way, but in like a, wow, you really hated this thing for so long. And now you're really gutted that you don't have it. So when it's, it's starting to grow back in a way that is, it feels more authentic to me. It, the, the tone color of it is a lot um, closer to what I wanted. Um, and it's not, it's not, you know, I'm not hitting top C's anymore, but like, I'm, I'm not too far off, which is, you know, quite nice. Mm. Um, so the, yeah, there's there's a little something wrapped around that in, in voicelessness and wishing for things to be slightly different and, and transience and journey that's kind of enjoying, it's not really enjoying the pain of it, I guess, but um, yeah, it, it feels like it links in.
in the diff in your in your changing of your voice, have you changed the way you you train your voice or practice your voice in any way, or do you do the same same things? I mean, or did you find you had to reorder what you did? Yeah, I think the the biggest thing to note is that my relationship with my ears, brain, and voice were three things that changed. It wasn't like they were. It was just that oh, I'm now my voice is lower. It would be that I. Again, going back to middle C, if as a mezzo-soprano, you hear a middle C, you sing a middle C. If you're um, a cis man, or if you've been socialized as a cis man, you hear a middle C, more often than not, you're actually singing the octave below. Um, and they're just kind of giving you that as the point of pitch, and you know intuitively that you sing down. So whilst I was aware of that kind of through having um, like men friends who sung bass, baritone, um, there was still that like, okay, I need to remember that I'm actually singing lower than this. And oftentimes when I would try and sing a C, I'd be holding this information of like, you're actually trying to sing the octave down. Um, but because my voice physically had moved, like my vocal cords had lengthened and had thickened, I would tell them to do one thing and they would do their own thing. So often I'd then sing a G or an F and it was like, ah, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so figuring out, yeah, like how, how to translate the new information from the ears to the voice, but also then from the voice to the brain and the brain back to the voice and the brain to the ears suddenly became this like this field that was like littered with minefields. Um, there were so many more ways of getting it wrong. Um, and I was consistently flat for like the first two years um, of my voice breaking. I just could not sing in tune. Um, and so I, I stopped using as much of the kind of classical warm-ups and exercises that I'd been trained to do. Um, because if I couldn't sing them at pitch, it felt like there wasn't much point. Um, and I think there's there's been a lot that's still translated in the way of like breath support um, and phrasing and like preparing for the onset of a note and like ending things nicely. There's a lot that's still useful, um, but there there is so much that just became irrelevant um, very quickly. So I try and do more um, practice that's kind of guided more by the repertoire that I'm singing and also more by intuition. Um, so. And also kind of having these new like extended vocal techniques, like with the vocal cords lengthening and thickening, I can now sing multiphonics. I can do two notes at the same time because one's slightly longer and thicker than the other one, which is a great party trick. Nice. You know? <laughs> it's very cool. Um, and yeah, so like figuring it, because again, like um, that happens to a lot of people when their voices are breaking, but by accident. And most cis men, if their voices are broken earlier on in life, it's, it's impossible to go back and try and find that feeling as an adult and like recreate it. But for me, because it was so recent, um, I've, I've, I wouldn't say mastered because it is still quite volatile, but there's a sense of like, I know how to position my vocal cords and like my soft palate and keep the airflow as consistent as it would be for chest voice, but kind of almost placed it in falsetto. So I can kind of get these two notes. Mm -hmm. And I don't think there's any classical technique that would allow me to like figure out how to work with that. So it's very much like led by what doesn't hurt to start with. <laughs> um, and like what allows me to do that more, um, kind of consistently. Because I think when it first started happening, it was just confusing and like quite funny. Um, but yeah, trying to like figure out how to master that is something that I feel a little bit self-directed on. Mm. I mean, it is interesting that 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 um, you know, for, for somebody who doesn't sing, oh, not not very well. I know you'll say that everybody sings because I'm, yes. I'm ready for you to jump in there with that. <laughs> um, uh, is is when you actually start to try and change your voice to try and understanding about it is actually such a complex process and um it, it takes for somebody who's not been trained it, it takes a lot of effort to even think about 
your muscles there. I know mm-hmm. it sounds silly, but you you know you probably are quite. Oh, I can I can do things with it, but for me, it's like you sit there thinking, okay, how do I move that muscle? I don't <laughs> even know how to even remotely think about that. And it, it, do I have that muscle? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Because you don't, you know, it is yeah. something we're not. We train other muscles in our bodies, but we don't train that voice muscle. And and it's except for singers. Mm-hmm. And if you're not a singer, it kind of it's weird to start thinking about it. And, and, I, and I kind of think, you know, this is something we should teach everybody to learn a bit about their voice, you know? Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. I think it is, it is important because you're right. It's really not talked about unless you're singing kind of like as a study. Um, one resource actually that I found really helpful that's designed for both beginners and for kind of intermediate pros is um, the Small Magician series um, written by Leah Shaw. Um, and it's it's very holistic and the way that she writes it, it's almost like she's sat next to you and you're sharing a cup of tea and she's just very gently talking you through how to do these exercises and it's very like oh we breathe at this time and honestly just yeah would would thoroughly recommend sounds great it's so interesting that I, I i would never have and this is my my um obnoxious purview as a musician of course people who don't study music in the voice don't realize how to use those muscles that's such a simple thing to say but i hadn't thought about it that way that of course until you study how to use your voice you don't know how to use those muscles that's that's my takeaway from that i just i haven't thought about it that way we all talk that's the the thing about it we we all Mm. talk but we don't think what we're doing you know and 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 for me is you know uh, even thinking about moving from a chest voice to a head voice is hard work mm. you know and and then you've got to think about how to constrain your throat and shorten mm. those muscles and this kind of thing and it's 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 something you just don't even even contemplate thinking about whereas most other muscles you've kind of got to feel you know what you're doing <laughs> and, have, and to, to do it like like you say Rylan, to do it safely and to do it without pain is like a very difficult thing and i and i wonder what you as somebody who is highly trained in voice and knows what that feeling of like training your voice is um, and to do it without pain and safely and with like good breath support and good blah, 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 blah. the kind of uh, trick your your brain and body are telling you that new sound of voice doesn't hurt but maybe should hurt in, in mm-hmm. the sense that like previously that that probably wasn't a great sound for your voice to be going through but that is the good sound now what what does that feel like as you're going through it uh, confusing in one yeah. word. Um, I think um, actually brings me perfectly to talk about the last track on the album um, because it starts with some voice deepening exercises. Because when I first came out, and we've been talking a lot about pitch of voice, right? And I, I um, still had a very squeaky high pitch voice. That was the thing that would most often get me misgendered. So I did what any other young trans mass person does and went on Google and typed in how to immediately lower voice no testosterone. <laughs> and surprise, surprise, there's no way of doing it. Um, but there is Lots a... Lots of videos, though. Lots yeah. of videos. You can do it. Yeah. yeah, you can't. One thing, actually, though, that I did come across, I think it was on, like, an FTM tips and tricks website, which is, like, yeah, hilarious, um, was, like, if you do, basically, you sing, like, the lowest note you can quietly and just keep trying to move it down um and if you do that for enough time holding it for as long as you can your speaking voice will be a few degrees lower and i religiously did this every morning to no avail 
um, and was like, eventually was like, this is just waste time. I'm not going to bother. Um, but there's something about the sound of it that like, it's very strained and it didn't, it didn't quite hurt, but it almost sounded like it should. Mm. <laughs> and so I, the last track of the album, I open with this voice deepening exercise. I do it, you know, for as long as I can, this kind of guttural, uh, kind of almost vocal fry sound. Uh, I think the first one, I think there's like maybe 30 seconds of that before the track like starts properly. And again, it's kind of going back to this like comedic timing of the thing of like, it, it's because the, the music that then kicks in is 14 year old me singing the aria in full with accompaniment. So to have this like very stark contrast of like, here's me trying to push my voice as low as it will go, but now two and a half years on testosterone versus here's 14 year old me who'd like barely started thinking about like how I could lower my voice. Um, yeah, there's there's something in that that um, yeah I think is just is really deeply funny. <laughs> well, shall we take a shall we take a listen to that? Then we can. Yeah, absolutely. Uh... Thank you. 
in my heart it is in my heart it is in my But I, I had to do the opposite, you know, which is the, 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 so I'm there trying to do this, you know, sort of thing and going, you know, go near falsetto as you can, but hold it there and you, your voice will go. My wife's going, is that a cat strangling you? What are you doing? You know, and, and it's like you sound like you're in pain. Yeah, yeah. And, it's, and it, it can really, it, it really screws you up if you don't know how to do it properly. I mean, mm -hmm. I, my voice gets quite weak quite quickly doing that. And, and it's, mm. but it is a, it is, don't ever look on the internet. If you, Jacob, if you want to change your voice, don't <laughs> do it on the internet. Okay. I it won't. really is. They really are some terrible things. Awful. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and you're right about the fatigue. Like it, it kicks in mm. so quickly if you're trying to balance it in a place where it isn't resonant. Like, yeah, yeah. We, I had, did you have to? I'm sorry, I'm thirty seconds here, then we'll go back to. The, did you? I had this one. This the, the locker pad I had who taught me some things had me blowing bubbles into a bottle of water. Does that kind? Do you know this one? It's very good singing technique generally. Yeah, yeah. yeah. She had me doing that and going, you know, blowing bubbles. Nice. Okay. That kind of thing, yeah. See, even when you're saying, oh, I can't sing, you've just done a lovely scale, like, in tune. So I'm <laughs> I'm really wondering where this comes from and how much of it is, like, brain rather than actual voice. Oh, it's it's probably, yeah, if I don't think about it, it's my brain going, I can't sing, uh, I can't sing, uh, I can't sing, okay. I can't sing, I can't sing. Well, we, we, we keep talking about this because every time, so every time we, we, we talk, I go, I can't sing, and mine goes, everybody can sing. <laughs> it's true. can sing. Like this, and I'm going. You haven't heard me in the shower, and <laughs> no, you haven't. Just, you know, like this kind of thing is happening. Right, so more decorum again. That's the show. Um, yes, the more decorum again. So um, yes, let's carry on. Jacob, <laughs> what uh, what was the experience like writing for yourself? So, as a composer who writes for other people, lots, uh, and uh, as somebody who knows voice in general uh, and is experiencing your own voice. What what was the process like writing, like accompaniment parts? How did you how did you uh, do the 
maybe backtracks everything else for yourself. How did that uh, flesh out for you? Yeah, um, I think it, at the time, and maybe still, uh, is the biggest piece that I've ever written for myself to do. Because um, I think when I was doing a couple of like, I've done exams and like interviews and auditions and stuff where I've written like very small things for me. Um, I wrote like a, it's like a two part, uh, I guess, like art song called A Tiny Madman, mm. which was about like that, that frustration of having like a high voice, which was like pinnacle voice breaking stuff. And I just couldn't sing any of it and consequently got really poor marks and reviews because I just <laughs> couldn't sing it. But that was kind of the point. So um, there's something um, in there that felt like it had to come um, quite naturally from me. So I've included piano as part of the instrumentation um, because whilst I'm, I'm not a pianist, that kind of is my instrument that isn't voice. Um, and I grew up kind of doing piano lessons and not being very good at it, but liking playing pop songs and kind of exploring chords and like figuring out harmony. Um, and if, even if now, like I'll sit down with my piano just to relax and like play some tunes that I like. Um, so that felt like a, a smart one to include. Um, and I wrote quite a lot of that at the piano rather than at the computer um to get a sense of like my rule of thumb writing for piano is like if i can play it really slowly a professional pianist will be able to play it properly <laughs> so like if it's physically manageable just really slow it's probably fine um and ed um the pianist ed cohen on that like is again just outstanding um so i had no complaints had nothing major to change um and i think similarly like i'd worked a little bit with simone the cellist on a few things beforehand but really wanted to include them and there's that kind of thinking along the lines of like well the cello allegedly has the closest range to the human voice so there's quite a lot maybe we could do with like doubling um there's a few moments where simone and i have got melodies together that are like very close in terms of intervals um and in my head that would sound like awesome that would sound a lot better and um, because the tone color of us like actually playing like simone's quite in tune i'm a little bit out of tune it's like a slightly uncanny valley sound to it. It's like, oh, this is kind of near enough like harmony, but you know. Um, and then I think um, the year before I wrote it, or maybe two years before, I'd written an ensemble piece and I'd been allowed to use percussion for the first time as a student. And I was like so psyched about having all these different drums or the vibraphone. So I was like, yeah, yeah I want percussion. Um, and I quickly realized that it was going to be quite a big piece um, and it was going to take quite a lot of work to do. And we wouldn't actually have much recording time. Um, cause you've recorded the whole thing in like just under three hours, like live, yeah. just like pretty much one take each. So I thought I need to really limit the percussion choices that I'm doing. Um, so I thought orchestral bass drum, there's actually quite a lot of different sounds you can get out of one of them. Um, I was very lucky to have been to a workshop a few years before that on like writing for orchestral bass drum and how different beaters change the sound, how you can do things with like thumb rolls, um, and like the tautness of the skin, what Super Bowl mallets do to it. Um, and I really, at the time, I was really into this thing called um, sonic substitution, which is where you hear something and you see something that like aligns with it, but is different. Um, and it comes up a lot in horror movies, actually. I promise it won't be a massive tangent. Um, <laughs> but there's like a few horror movies where you maybe hear the sound of like an electric chainsaw, but you see like a handsaw. And even though you know they're kind of different, your brain kind of like, yeah, it gels with them because you recognize both of those things as kind of being in world. Um, so kind of roughly playing with that idea for the bass drum <laughs> live there's moments where I ask the bass drum player to pick up a um, cello bow and bow the side of the bass drum and at the same time you hear through the speakers the sound of bowed cymbals and obviously that's quite a different sound um, mm. and I've not yet we've not managed to time it so that it looks like really effective um, but I think there's something in that about like creating a visual and sonic narrative 
um, that mm. I can occupy, that everyone can occupy. Um, but yeah, it's those extra little, like slightly theatrical, slightly campy things have worked their way into all of the accompaniment parts, which is, is how I like to work, you know? I, I love that, working in slightly campy things. Kind of yeah, <laughs> I think it's important, you know? Um, and yeah, again, going back to like this kind of old recordings of me and like how self-serious they are, like I mm. think, um, yeah, there's, there's got to be scope, and for me anyway, in the work that I do, there's got to be scope for some things to be a bit funny sometimes. Mm. But but you've always had, I mean, just talking personally, you've always had a bit of bit of that kind of in you, even earlier on. Well, well, I being camp. That, well, being camp, but no, I was talking about having the funny side of things. You've always been uh -huh. a camp, we know that. But, but I, I remember some of your scores having little fish in it and all kinds of things and, and that kind of thing, you know, so so maybe it's just sort of blossomed out a little bit more now. I think it's, um, as you were saying earlier, like kind of when you're feeling more like yourself, um, you're probably going to be more authentically funny rather than like performative funny. Mm. Um, and I think when I um, wrote music as kind of like an undergrad student, I had these ideas of like making my string quartet players actually speak and then they'd say all these things and they go back to playing. And it was like this, this word almost like sarcastic kind of like, um, yeah, this odd sense of humor. And the music itself would kind of be almost more like Stravinskyan or a bit Shostakovich-y. Mm. Um, and like, whilst it was kind of, it was more interesting to me than like, uh, just writing the music itself and letting it kind of exist. It had this kind of extended reality by having the players talk. It really wasn't particularly authentic. I think it was influenced by like what I thought I should be writing and the kind of trends of new music, which, you know, I think are often really interesting, but it wasn't coming from that place of authenticity. And I think as I've got more comfortable myself as a person and as an artist, it's like, yeah, no, I do want to lip sync along to an old recording of me. And I do want to have like weird fish in my score, like yeah. <laughs> the scope for all sorts. Yeah. But as you say, you know, it's, it's very hard to do anything authentically when you're hiding yourself anyway. Mm -hmm. I mean, it is kind of a, you know, uh, you force a persona upon yourself. I find, you know, yep. you, I always used to do that it was like, I had to do this, that ABC because that's the persona I had to put forward. Yep. And and as you let it come out, you get more camp and there are more weird fish around than this kind of thing. So. <laughs> it's beautiful. That's a really beautiful way of describing it. Yeah. More weird fish. More weird fish. Jacob, more weird fish. What do you think? More weird fish. I'm pro more camp, more weird fish. <laughs> Everything. I, I, I wrote a paper when I was starting my PhD about how everything, as I get older and as I, as I get further and further into to being a musician and an artist, the more gay shit I can do, the happier I am. And the more I can like focus in on doing only gay things. Fantastic. It just, it makes everything better. Even when I'm like not doing the gay things, even when it's not queer, it's just so much better. It's just so much happier. All my conducting is just so much better. Conducting straight ensembles, it's fine. But if I can do it from being just so queer in camp, that's so much more fun for me. And then it's just, it's better all around. I get it. I'm on board. Yeah. That's yeah. just really beautiful too. That's, thank you for sharing that. Like that's, yeah, yeah, it's given me a lot of joy just now. <laughs> Good. Yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, I, th I think it's, you know, it, it's the honesty with ourselves, I think is the, is the thing for me. It's, it's, you know, I, somebody who's older, I spent half, most of my life lying and, you know, and putting up fronts and, and, and that doesn't make you a happy person. It doesn't also make you very authentic. So mm. when you finally get there, you know, they talk about gender euphoria. I mean, you know, and this kind of thing.
and and yeah that 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 sort of like woo yeah you're off the rails for a little while you know and this kind of thing but but it, but it 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 does hit and it does you know when you finally can fit in your body or you can demonstrate your sexuality or whatever it is if you if you can do that then then you get not only authentic people but you get authentic music mm. which i guess is is really what we're hearing here i mean i guess it is is authentic rylan yeah, absolutely. And I think um, it brings me to kind of a, an interesting talking point about the album, which is that um, for a lot of, and this is throwing no shade on, on labels at all, but a few of the labels, because I self-released it, a few of the labels I sent it to said, um, you know, we really like the instrumental writing, but the voice writing, it's really rough, isn't it? You know, the vocals recorded it, you know, they're pretty, pretty nasty. And I'm like, yeah, 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 no, that's, that's kind of the point. Like I, I wrote music that I could barely sing. And like, I think, yeah, I think that's, you know, such a big part of it is this kind of struggle with it. And um, even after recording and after kind of some of these comments, I had that urge to go back and like, oh, well, we could re-record it. You know, we could do it again. It really wasn't that difficult. And, you know, I'd sound better now that I'm a better singer. Um, and after kind of musing on it a bit, it was like, you know what? It's, it's so much better that it comes out with all of these imperfections because that's exactly how it was at the time. And sure, you can perform it much better now. That, you know, goes without saying. But like, you can't ever capture this again um mm. and uh, yeah yeah and uh, yeah it's important for it to exist like that i think yeah i i mean i've always felt that that you know I, I think we talked about this before with somebody else jacob that 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 quite often you get music is kind of overly curated i don't mm. know what the right word mm -hmm. is but you know it is so perfect you polished. know they drive it to sorry polished polished yeah that's a good word it is so polished it loses the, the character and feel of the humanity of it, I guess. And, 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 you know, I, I think we were talking about Mozart when we talked about this by, by coincidence. And, and, you know, I, I'm sure, you know, you, Mozart is over and I'm sure Mozart didn't do that. I, I really don't mm. think he spent, you know, he was there knocking them out and they, ah, that's it. And let's go on to the next one. And, and <laughs> that sounds terrible to sniff a Mozart knocking them out and doing like this, but I think he did. I mean, he was kind of like that. And, 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 is it ever meant to be perfect? And and I think the imperfections here um, bring out, you know, the humanity of it all, which is kind of what we all are. So, yeah, no, no, hundred percent. No, very, very beautifully yeah. profound. <laughs> We're getting much too profound now. So, so <laughs> I, I, th I think at that for this point, we thank you for for being here, Island, and sharing this journey with us. And and uh, and an amazing, it's an amazing uh, album. And for 43 minutes, you said, yeah, amazing 43 minute album and, and well worth a listen. So I hope the listeners will, 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 will take, a, take a listen. So thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. It's lovely to speak to you both again. So that's all for this episode. You've been listening to the Classical Queer podcast and Jake and I look forward to being with you next month. The incidental music is courtesy of Jared Miller and the show was produced by Samantha Jane.